This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode of Marketing Trends features a CMO roundtable with Leela Shernivasan, CMO of SurveyMonkey, Keith Messick, CMO of Dialpad, and Corinne Sklar, CMO of IBM IX. In this roundtable conversation, they discuss best practices for the first 90 days of taking over as a CMO. They cover topics ranging from what initiatives to focus on to how to get to know your team. It's a really great episode for new CMOs or really any marketer that's stepping into a new management position. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have special episode, CMO Roundtable, coming at you. Leela, how's it going? It's going great, Ian. So good to be here. I'm Leela Srinivasan, and I'm the CMO of SurveyMonkey. Corinne, how are you? I'm great. I'm uh, Corinne Sklar. I'm the CMO of IBM IX. And Keith, back so soon. So soon. How are you? I'm well. Keith Messick, CMO at Dialpad. I'm working on my radio voice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It needs no work. I promise you that. We all can work on that. It's the harder thing is working on your TV face. That's the tougher thing. Right. Okay. So we're going to get into a bunch of stuff today as we tend to do on our CMO roundtables, but I wanted to start off with something that we've talked about on previous roundtables and on this show, something that's near and dear to every CMO's heart. The first 90 days on the job. Lila, well, let's start out with you. Let's just say you had a magic wand and your first 90 days, you could go back and do some things the same and do a little things different. Uh, how would you approach joining a CMO? Well, drawing on the Starving Monkey experience, I think for me, the first 90 days were uh, really about getting up to speed on the priorities, right? You got to know what your business priorities are so that you can be a great partner to the rest of the organization. I also had to, it was interesting. I was the first CMO that SurveyMonkey's ever had. So yeah. it was a little bit of sort of, you know, training the organization in some ways on how to involve a, a, a C-level marketeer in, the, in the, the mix. The first 90 days also is about figuring out what happens after that, right? You got to, it, it's really the, the, the phase of formulating your ideas, your point of view on what needs to be different as you go forward, right? So that was, that was a big part for me. Uh, the third part for me was leaning into the team. So in, in true confession style here, this was the first time I had inherited a team. Mm. Right? I had built teams from the ground up, but walking into a preformed team of 60, 70 marketers is, is a very different experience. And for me, I, if I could go back in time and change one thing, I would lean into getting to know the team more than I was able to. And the, uh, the, the excuse I have, Ian, is that I walked in the door and my very first executive team meeting, we were in the IPO shoot. So I was oh, a little yeah. distracted. You know, I had this IPO thing going on and that I knew actually from talking to a couple of peers who had been through IPO that the thing that goes to pot in that period is just, how, you know, how much time you spend with your, with your team members. And so that's the only thing I wish I could have changed. 
Corinne, what about you? Well, I mean, I recently took on uh, the role of CMO for IBM IX, but prior to that, really, I'd been in the role for 13 years. And so, you know, it'd been a long time and, you know, starting from scratch, building the teams from scratch. So this has been a real different experience, especially in a brand and a company as large as IBM. So I would say there's really three things that I've been doing and that I would say, you know, I recommend to to other CMOs. Number one, start with the revenue. And what I mean by that is you're going to hear a lot of different ideas from people. And that's all great. You're going to say you should be doing this or this is what I want. But I think the thing that tells the most is starting from not the top of the funnel and the campaigns and the brand, but what are customers buying today? And really looking at what is what is selling, what are the issues, and follow it all the way back from revenue to the top of the funnel. And so that would be kind of the first thing is to, to look at the data and understand what customers are actually buying. The second thing I would say, similar to what you said, is you got to talk to your stakeholders. You got to understand the business. And I think it's it's sometimes difficult to understand who really are your stakeholders. You might think you know who they are, but really trying to walk through that and and have a, a process to engage stakeholders. So, you know, for me in particular, I interviewed 26 of the business leaders and I recorded them and I reported back out to them. I said, "Here's where you're aligned, here's where you're not aligned." So let's now have a conversation on what really is the business strategy because you can't develop a marketing strategy if you don't have an aligned business strategy. So in some ways, you know, the CMO can really act as that glue to really bring the business together. You know, usually there's a reason why a CMO is being brought in. That's probably a whole other conversation that we could oh, we we'll get to. We'll get to that. Um, and I would say, you know, the last thing is and this is personal for me, but, you know, well-behaved women rarely make history. And I, I believe that you need to take risk. And first 90 days, what is your big bet, right? What, what are you really putting a stake in the ground around? Because that's why you're in this role, especially in, you know, companies that are looking for growth and change. So those are some of the, the piece of feedback that I give for first 90 days. Keith? Yeah, I think it, it sort of depends on your circumstances as well. Like in, in my situation, I've had quite a few where clearly something previously wasn't going well or not well enough to continue it. And so you're trying to figure out what that was, not repeat it, find out what it actually is. You know what you what you're told it is, but then you have to get in and figure out what it is. And then in my situation, especially with the companies I've worked for, Really understanding the product right out of the gates is a huge, huge advantage because oftentimes the CEO and founders are very product driven and it's sort of how you get instant cred is to be able to speak the product language, even though sometimes like at my last company, the product is mind numbing, still have to get in there and do it. So that's sort of probably my one addendum is depending on the company, if it's very product driven culture spend those first 90 days making sure that not only you, but your team really understands it. I think a lot of times in B2B marketing, the marketing, the sales team is supposed to know the product really well. Product marketing is supposed to know it well, but then everyone else tends to just sort, like the designers don't feel like it's their job to understand the product, oh, yeah. right? Which is really drives me crazy. I, so yeah, I, can I jump off that? I Please. think that's so, I mean, in our last podcast, we talked about, 
a program that we do at in our organization around marketers just understanding our client stories and having them own those and develop those themselves because I think it's a big issue. I think there's a lot of marketing teams that don't understand the product right. or the service in my case. And I think it's a, it, it's a definite issue across the board. Yeah, I, I'm really fortunate on that front in that our company solves for that at the, you know, the whole team level. So the most popular part of our onboarding first 90 days is that we do a two day workshop on um, surveys and how do you actually run a good survey we allow our teams to basically launch a, a project on SurveyMonkey Audience, which is our panel project. So they come up with what's the what are the questions we're going to ask, who are the sample that we want to go after, and they actually go out and they they do it for real. So they get the hands-on experience. And I just heard our MPS is north of eighty, I think, for that particular onboarding program because people are just they're so jazzed to get their hands on the product and start to learn to use it themselves. That's really cool. I think you know, in hearing kind of that and and what what we talked about, especially at your marketing kickoff, which by the way, we still haven't released that episode yet. Um, <laughs> but uh, so for reference, I spoke to Corinne's team at a, at their marketing kickoff, like, is that like three months ago? Yeah, January. Yeah, January. <laughs> Gee, oh, that's six months ago? No, um, it wasn't that late. Was it? Anywho. But, um, but I thought that this idea of having people, you know, owning those customer stories and being able to talk about the product, use the product. And then the final step is like, could you step in and get on a sales call and be able to like take a sales call. And I forget one of the CMOs we had on the show talked about that where they were like every single person in the first 90 days, I had everyone on the marketing team, like on an actual sales call. And then that was, you know, crawl, walk, run. And then the final one that you have to take one yourself, because if you can't speak intelligently with a prospect about the product, like how could we expect you to write about it? All right, so we we do two steps on that. So number one, you know, inside sales team, BDRs, DDRs, whatever you want to call them. In our sales kickoffs, we actually have everybody do those calls. The BDR team is the one that runs it with the marketing team. So everybody, you know, makes calls so they can have the experience and put your, understand what our, our the funnel looks like at the end of the day. But the other thing I do with my directors is I have them engage in a sales cycle and pitch with a customer. And I think that is one of the most rewarding things for them is, you know, you've been in an organization for a long time and to be able to be on a sales team, especially with big accounts, like what we're doing, to be part of that process, they're tracking that deal wherever it goes. It just moved to 50%. We just closed the deal. And so they feel a real sense of ownership to be part of that sales team. And so I think it's hugely valuable and to to not separate marketing from sales. Absolutely. And there's nothing more humbling than having to be a BDR for the day. You're right. Exactly. <laughs> Wow, that's a that's a hard job to have. So it's mm-hmm. it's great that you give people that hands on mm-hmm. experience of that. Yeah, yeah. I would, go ahead. Hit your hit your hundred uh, client contacts. Ooh, right. 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 right, right. I don't think I came out of sales, so I have a intense appreciation of how hard that job is. Mm. I think a lot of marketers don't, and so it's pretty good. And I also think a lot of salespeople are whiny about it. Quote me on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that being said, it's any way you can get them sort of in those shoes. So certifications, we have everyone learn the pitch, learn the demo. In our case, like every employee uses the software, it's telephony, but like that doesn't mean they understand the product. It's like two different things. So we work really hard on making sure they can demo it effectively. And yes, even the design team, and if nothing else, that just makes me happy because they hate it so much. (laughs) Um, But it really does make a big difference. And also the sales team looks at you finally and they think, all right, well, 
good, mm-hmm. good for you. And it also <laughs> removes an excuse. Right. It works right. for everyone. Oh, right. the empathy that you build. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes. So in that first 90 days, there's maybe one thing that you kind of say, I'm going to put this under my wing. This is not going to be something I delegate because it's so important. Or maybe there is something that you were saying, I want to do that, but I'm 100% going to delegate this because I it needs to not be under me anymore. What are those things that that you had in, in that time frame? Billy, you can go first. Yeah, I'm thinking of it. I'm trying to think back to 90 days. So there was, a, there was one of the... One of the initiatives or projects that I was really feeling bullish about that I knew would be hard for the organization to get behind because it was new to them was doing a big virtual conference, basically. Mm. So, you know, if you think about Survey Monkey's journey, everybody thinks of us as a self-serve, easy to use, simple tool. Reality is there's a ton of power there. We've been moving to the enterprise steadily for, for the last couple of years. And so that takes a different set of, of tactics and strategies, as you all know. Um, so one of the things I really wanted to do was was line up this virtual conference in the back half of the year. I was told that we wouldn't have time to pull it off. There's a lot of apprehension around sort of an at-scale project that we hadn't done before. But I was able to hire in a head of demand, Jen, basically, who I trusted implicitly to get this done. So my role was basically championing that that project, making sure that it got executive support and attention. We had certain executives key, you know, involved in keynotes and other things and helping to drum up speakers and helping to promote and, and really just getting the whole organization behind it because it was a heavy lift and it was a new set of muscles. But the actual work itself was not obviously not the thing that I was on. I was really on just making sure it got the visibility and had the backing and you know where I could pull out the Rolodex and get the right speakers lined up. That was where I felt I could make a difference. So, so we pulled it off and uh, our president afterwards was like, I'm really glad we did that. That was, yeah, you know, right? that worked out really well. When's the next one, sort of thing? So, you know, you 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 uh, be careful what you wish for, sort of thing. But uh, no, it was great. But it, I think because it was new, and to Corinne's point, you're being brought in for a reason, right? You're trying to switch up tactics and do things differently, and it was really important to take a stance on this particular thing. And I think that thinking about those is this uncomfortable because where we've never done it is uncomfortable because of that, or is it uncomfortable because it's not something that's organic to the organization, or is it something that just our executives never wanted to be bothered with? Like the reasons why behind the, oh, it, we just have never done it this way. Yeah. And I think for us, because because the notion of enterprise and a B2B conversation was just a new thing to think about, right? I mean, you, you think about webinars and these types of at-scale events, and they're, they're pretty commonplace in, in the sort of the B2B landscape. Um, for us, it was just something that we hadn't thought about before. We hadn't thought about stringing together a succession of stories over a 12, 15 uh, session event. And so from the outside, it sort of looked complex and it looked alien. It just looked like something that we hadn't got our our, uh, heads around before. But uh, we're now already prepping for the second one. It's called Curiosity Conference. It'll be in September. Uh, Maybe there are some potential speakers in the room. Not me, but <laughs> so did, did you speak up and volunteer? Or something? No, so, I was. I, I thought we were talking about Catherine, who's producing, and on here on the ones and twos. Keith, what about you? What was the things that I had to take myself? Yeah, yeah. stuff that you either were happy to delegate or were not happy to delegate. Yeah, I mean, so, so I try to think of it as, as opposed to just specifics. I always try and think of it as like sort of like a two by two. I'm a big fan of two by twos. And it's sort of like on one axis is like, how sure am I of the answer? And the other axis is like, how big of a risk do I think the individual thing is? I didn't come up with that. 
Um, so I will not take credit for it, but I use it all the time. And so it's really simple. If I'm sure of something and it's high risk, then I just take it. If I'm sure of something and it's low risk, then I try and help someone make that decision instead of just delegate it. And then when it's low risk and you're unsure, I don't really care, go for it. And you can sort of just appropriately start to map out big things. But in my case with Dialpad, when I came in, there was so the seat was open for a little bit. So, of course, that means the team gets really nervous. A lot of them leave. A lot of them think the new person's going to come in and fire everyone. So then they especially leave. And so we were running a pretty small team at that point. So I just grabbed a hold of demand, right? Demand will solve a lot of challenges. Like, let's make sure we don't lose that. I try to grab control of like brand consistency because I felt like in that time that the seat was open, things had gotten a little wild west and it was it was depending on who had written something or who had designed something, it could feel like a completely separate company. And I felt like if I could just lock those two things down for the first three, four, five months, then it would give us a lot of runway to do other things. And so far, so good. Great. Cool. Yeah, I would say what you said and you said and add a few things on there. I'll start with what I don't delegate. Number one, it's building the relationships with your stakeholders. I mean, that to me is the very first thing is that is FaceTime, is is FaceTime and communicating the business strategy and the marketing strategy. Can't delegate that. I have to own that. I have to align. And really, it's about executive alignment. I would say I probably spend most of my time there because it doesn't matter what's coming down the line if you don't have that you're never going to be able to execute. So I would say don't delegate that. What I do delegate is pretty much everything else. Um, (laughs) uh, Approvals. I don't have to approve everything, right? I think we have to push those things down. I have the saying in the team, and I'm sure my team, if they're listening, will get a laugh out of this, but I always say business is not a democracy and that you all have votes. And especially my directors, you know, I really empower the directors as leaders. And I say, you all have a vote. My votes count for two. Yeah. So, but, but there are only two votes, so I can, sw- I can swing it, you know, swing a vote, but you guys all have, you know, a voice in this. And so I do, I do really believe in um, that collaborative approach, especially with people who are, you know, part of the organization for a long time. Uh, yeah. I'm just thinking back to, to my experience coming in when you're a new leader, your team as well, just doesn't know where you sit on that. I don't know what the scale of dictatorship is to to a democracy. But uh, I think just being really crystal clear and over communicating when you are giving them the D, when you've seen enough of the work to trust their final answer. And I think that can be incredibly empowering if you get that right. I I have a follow up question on that. Do you ever struggle with the fact that certain leaders have such a different style that specifically with like that democracy, I imagine this as the, uh, the town hall, right? Where it's like the guy who gets up and screams about the pothole in front of his house every single day is probably going to get the pothole filled because it's in, he's screaming about it every day. And the quiet guy who, you know, there's a sewer lateral that's broken and there's like water spilling everywhere, but he's, you know, just a little more quiet and never gets repaired. Is there kind of some of that stuff that goes on that you have to be aware of? And like, how would you navigate those type of things? It's for everyone. It's an all play to win. It's just the squeaky wheel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly. So data helps a lot of these arguments and marketing historically was not very good at data. 
And then obviously we've talked about this, but over-indexed on like, let's measure everything, which is also a nightmare. But usually what I find is, well, in the marketing seat, usually sales is that squeaky wheel. It's great. Totally expect it. I was said wheel as well. And then you just have to have good enough data to determine, is this right? Is it, you know, are we really not getting enough of this or is the process broken? And what I find is that I always tell my team, you should just know the numbers better than anyone in the company. Like that's your job. And it's sort of malpractice if you show up at a meeting and get surprised by any numbers. And that's not meant to be like combative. It's just, it will make things go much smoother when everyone agrees on the data. And so much of business, especially like we, we've we doubled in size in 18 months. So we went from like 200 to 450 employees. So that's an intense, you know, everything from bad systems and legacy data to getting everyone. And so much of the first couple of months of Dollpad was just getting everyone in the room to look at a report and agree that the report was accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. that was such a win where everyone's like, do we all agree? That's the mm-hmm. number of leads this month. Yes. Right. For sure. Congratulations. Like, and right. then you can do something with it, but you got to make it less qualitative in my experience. Yeah. I would say, I mean, a lot of what you're talking about is back to alignment, yep. right? Around business alignment. And obviously me being in the services business, you know, that has been, it's a big part of what we do whether when we're going in and working with enterprises today is around aligning them. It's not just about buying technology, same, same goes. And I do think, you know, what I would say around, you know, the squeaky wheel goes back to who's really are your stakeholders and you're not going to be able to shut all the noise out. And actually, if there's no noise, you might not be doing anything right either. So back to, you know, making sure that there's people in the organization that are questioning your strategy, in my mind, says you're doing something right. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't listen. And it doesn't mean that there's, you know, not a part of it that you should be doing. But I do think you need to be having a lot of those voices coming up because it's driving dialogue as well. The other thing that comes to mind, Ian, with your question is just the importance of communication styles. So going back to the the person who didn't get their thing fixed because they just were quiet about it. I feel like over the last several years, more and more leadership teams are just embracing whatever whatever test is the well, the one du jour. Right? We use DISC at SurveyMonkey. I've used the Insights Color Wheel before, and just really f- spending the time and the the investment on taking something that will help set benchmarks for how the team communicates, what different people's different preferences are, their communication styles, what matters to them. Do they need data in order to you know do anything? Do they shoot from the hip? Are they introverted, extroverted? Whatever whatever technique you use to just make that a really conscious set of information that is acknowledged and that you can use to to morph your style to be successful with different people. I've, I've found that to be just more and more relevant in, um, in today's workforce. Let's talk about getting fired. Not that any of you are getting fired here today on the podcast. What I mean is uh, what it takes for someone to put in the work that gets them let go. We've talked about at length, you know, the CMOs specifically in technology are the shortest tenured in the C-suite, but it seems like there's some steps that you need to either do or steps that you aren't doing that kind of leads you on that path. What would be your, your best guess at what gets CMOs fired? Just to be clear, I have zero experience of this, sure. happily. But back to Corinne's thumping the tub on alignment, right? You got to understand business priorities, what is most important for your your key stakeholders. Make sure you have open dialogue about those things so that you're not 
diverging in ways that aren't obvious to you. So I, I, I think it's all to me, it's all rooted in communication and priorities. Yeah, I would I would say it's the it's the alignment around what is the business priorities and understanding how marketing is going to show how they're involved in driving those. And obviously, if the business isn't growing and the business isn't meeting its goals, marketing is a part of that. But when it's going well, also making sure that you can demonstrate how your strategy is aligned to that. It's interesting to see like what will marketers spend their time doing when they first walk in the door, which yeah. is what this podcast's about. I think it's really an important question. If you spend your first 90 days thinking about how I drive attribution and multi-attribution and aligning around a model and your CEO doesn't really care about that, might not be the best place to start. <laughs> so I do think it goes back to, you know, what's important to your number one stakeholder? I think that's a great point, but I would also say that or I would, I would posit that maybe there are things that like a product centric CEO that they don't know what they don't know. And that's the reason why they hired you. So I think there's, I think in general, marketers get fired for either reasons that are totally their fault, part of what you guys were talking about alignment, and then also things that are probably not their fault per se. I'll go over both. I think part of the challenge with along with um, alignment is that a lot of times like marketing, in my opinion, is not a playbook job. It's a learning and doing job. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times marketers and chief marketers come in, irregardless of the audience, ir like just like, here's how we're going to do it. And here's my literal notebook at times of what we're going to do. And, and it doesn't matter whether we're marketing to engineers who hate marketers and marketing or we're marketing to small businesses. It's like this is just the playbook yeah. as opposed to learning about the business and the audience and all of the priorities and doing. So that's totally on you, chief marketers listening. Not their fault is marketing is oftentimes the thing that like it's the thing you can change overnight. If you have a problem with your revenue organization or product hasn't shipped, you can mess with the website and the copy endlessly or the presentation deck or whatever it is. Right. And it can become the thing that the CEO, I mean, I used to always say, like, you know, the difference between marketing and engineering is that marketers don't think they're engineers. So it's the thing where, like, everyone has an opinion. Right. It can be completely subjective. And, and so you end up in this sort of death spiral of, like, things that don't really matter but are sort of easy to change get the attention of a team that's oftentimes not really familiar with marketing or never hired a marketer before or it's not their bag, per se. Mm -hmm. And then that's a hard spiral to get out of. Yeah. Not from personal experience, but I've seen it happen. <laughs> I love what you said on the uh – sort of learning and doing job. <laughs> I think the pace is only accelerating. So I have this, uh, you know, this, this notion that you're, you're just constantly adjusting the flight path, basically, when you're on the job. So yep. I do think adaptability is a huge part of that. That said, I think when organizations go through shifts, sometimes that's the reason to bring in leadership. And there's a specific reason, a specific purpose that you're brought in to do. And it, sometimes the marketer's background just doesn't align with that. Yeah. So I've seen situations where you know, you were the you were a great marketer to get from A to B or B to D, but you you're just not the right person for D to F because that's not a movie that you have remotely seen before. Nor do you have that adaptability in a way that gives confidence you're going to be able to to learn on the journey. Yeah, I like that. I, I think the point you made also around the question is 
you know, what do if you have leadership that doesn't necessarily know what they want? Yeah. How do you right? coach up? And so I, I like that point a lot, actually. And I think this is a huge opportunity for CMOs right now, which is in you and I've spoken about. I think there's going to be more CMOs who become CEOs. Yeah. And it's because you start hearing a lot of these organizations at the CEO level talking about brand purpose and around trying to find broader meaning for their employees and for the industry. And I think this is really opening up the CMO's role. We've already said CMOs own the customer experience, which is very broad. We already own now demand generation. Well, now we're here to articulate the total brand purpose, which has been a CEO level conversation. So I do think you know, this is an opportunity for CMOs to be really leaning in and, and thinking like CEOs. I think if, if CMOs can think like CEOs, that is how you're going to be able to drive a broader mission around where the company's supposed to be going as a whole. Yeah, I mean, we had Jennifer Johnson from the CMO Attainable in here for CMO Roundtable and on a previous episode talking about category creation. And she said that basically the first step of this was like, take all the executives in the C-suite, sit them down and say like, what does our product do? And it's like, you'd be surprised that sometimes you know the answers and you kind of getting that alignment just from like, hey, let's start with the one sheet and figure out what is the, what is the future that we're trying to kind of mediate here. But I think that the other lesson there is that when you're the one with the whiteboard, then it's like you're the architect of the messaging that's going to be the messaging for 10 years. You're not the you know, or 10 or five or one or whatever it is. But I think that that's the position where you can kind of coach up and like teach them, hey, this is, you know, what marketing was over the past 10 years of your career that you think that your like observations about marketing is now completely different. There's 6,000 technologies that marketers have. There's all these other things. It's moving really fast. So even your experiences with marketing over the last, the CMO that you had five years ago, all of those things are completely different now going forward. And you need to understand like, this is what my view of the world is as where marketing is going and like how our company should see marketing, like yes or no, up or down, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think understanding what you're getting into and from a CMO perspective, really understanding my assumption and, and hopefully that the CMOs are reporting into CEOs or executive leadership as much as possible and understanding what does that CEO really actually want from you? What are you getting yourself into? I think you really need to understand what kind of CMO are they hiring and what do they actually need and understand how that's actually aligned. Because if you have a CEO who wants you to bring brand vision and, and category creation and your execution focus and you really don't have a messaging or brand background, it's going to be tough. Yeah. It's usually most of the vice versa. I want tactics versus I'm a visionary brand yeah. marketer. Mm -hmm. So I think you've got to, you got to really, you need to find the organization is the right one for you and making sure that's aligned there. I had, I had one thing to say. There we go. There you go. Sorry. Go for it. So the back to your fired thing, part of this, it depends too on the stage of company. So, I mean, oftentimes startups are, they're relay races. Yeah. And so the the first head of marketing was never meant to be there longer than 18 months and hopefully was compensated accordingly for being there for 18 months. But you, they, you needed someone really tactical who to hand it off to someone. And then you you end in a different place. 
it's very hard. We talk about this internally a lot about stage appropriate resources. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. It's really hard to, to be on a team that starts something and rides it the whole way through. I mean, that's a, that's a very unique talent to be able to imagine. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think part of the time is that marketing is the thing sales is in the same boat where you look at it and it's like, okay, well, this is what I needed for SMB, but now we're moving upstream Mm -hmm. or this is what I needed for demand, but now I want to move into brand. And hopefully you can fold those people into the fabric of the company. But oftentimes it's just, everyone is fully transparent with, how long they're going to be there. No, it's not a huge surprise. You sort of know you're going to get pushed out once you um, move to that next stage. I want to switch gears to storytelling in B2B. And I brought you all here because I think you're a funny group. Um, <laughs> and and it's jokes time. No. Um, and I think that, you know, all of you in our conversations on previous episodes, we talked a little bit about being memorable, about, you know, what we say is marketing is meant to be remarkable. You know, humor is a huge part of that. Being thoughtful is part of that. Corinne's Pluck the Chicken is part of that. How do you think that you can be memorable in today's age in B2B when everyone talks about, you know, seven second videos and all this sort of stuff that I kind of think we all collectively think doesn't really feel like it moves the needle too much in B2B? Um, so how can you be, you know, thoughtful and, and remarkable? I'll take a quick stab. And I think there's probably several things we could talk about here, but I'll, I'll take one that I think can impact pipeline and revenue right away is we get very focused in marketing around just what marketing can do. But in a B2B world, which is, is somewhat different in consumer, and you know this is B2B focused, is remembering that your salespeople are walking up and down elevators all day long, or they should be in meeting, especially in enterprise sales. And We spend a lot of time in marketing thinking about our messaging, but really working with our salespeople around making their moments memorable. And how do we, 10 years ago, when Seth Godin did Purple Cow, we took that serious. I mean, we we did things like, I don't care what you do when you go into that meeting, just don't do anything that's expected. I mean, we would do things like, stand in the back of the room and and do your presentation. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, we just want, you know, it was things like, you know, uh, years ago, and I'm going to forget his name right now, but we brought in an author who wrote the book, Back of the Napkin. We said, we're not going in with any PowerPoints at all. Yeah. And so a lot of the memorable experiences, yes, that can happen with marketing, and we could talk about that, but I do think it starts with the people that are sitting in front of your clients every day. So I'd start there. That's I, yeah. Oh, sorry. I just love that. Cash, that's so great. Throwing high heat, Corinne. I love it. Um, <laughs> I, I remember one of the sale, one sales meeting that I went on where I showed up, I was not buying the product or the person showed up and they're like, hey, we're going on a walk and talk. And I was like, what? And like, we literally walked around San Francisco at like a feverish pace. I did not buy that stuff. But at the end of the day, I'm like, man, I still remember it. Right. And it was really weird and yeah, a lot of huffing and puffing, but hey, you know, like it was better than, you know, the thousand pitches I forgot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, that ties in with the experiences piece that we were talking about before we got going here. And I, I do think that leaders in general are are moved by experiences and by connections and by relationships and all of those all of those things. So in the ABM type environment, right, you see you see that coming to life through unusual events or different ways of providing value to those constituents. At scale, it's harder. 
because you can't, you know, you can't literally take everyone for the most spectacular and memorable dinner experience of their lives. But where I find I continue to be interested is in, in how brands are using this new wave of influencers, aka their customers, to do real storytelling, real time in different environments, whether it's podcast ads or whatever it happens to be, and bringing your next wave of customers closer to your existing customers' experiences, I think continues to be super compelling. I love that too. And with a product like SurveyMonkey, like the stuff that you can do as a sales rep or as a marketer or something, you could bring like, hey, here's a survey. I already created all the questions. I did all the stuff. Here's the draft. You can just make a copy of this. You can have it. I made it for you. Like, here you go. Something like that. Like that costs zero dollars other than, you know, sweat equity to do the time and think about the person, right? Like, yeah, that's how you can differentiate. The age of the personalized survey, actually. So this is my hiring trick. I'm three for three on this. Hiring executives uh, or senior members of the team where, you know, and it's always been a competitive process and you're, you're going through it and you're at that final stage. And if you've done your job of hiring well, you have listened and you've understood what their motivations are, what might excite them about your role, et cetera, et cetera. Like, why would they choose your company over another? So for those three people who said, yes, I have put together a custom survey of five or six questions. For example, for your first one-on-one with Xander Lurie, our CEO who you met and loved, which of the following would you choose? Is it a walking one-on-one? Is it lunch and treetops? Is it, you know, just having them visualize what does it mean to join your company? Which of the following are you most excited to own? Or, you know, know, just make it really, really explicit and specific to them. So you can imagine, you know, because it's really about having listened and heard and understood the motivations of what's driving the behavior. So that's my little recruiting secret. You could use that same tactic for a sales prospect, right? After a conversation, right? You can imagine recapping the points that were made in survey style or in quiz format and see if, you know, see if that engages them differently. Mm -hmm. Leela knows her eight yes is equal to sale. Yes. Doing her homework. (laughs) So... From the marketing should be remarkable. I I agree with everything you you, uh, said. I think there's also this is something that it's gotten better since the past 10 years, but it still amazes me a little bit. I think a lot of times it depends on your like the team's DNA, right? If you have a lot of people who are ex Oracle, then usually they understood brute force. Just, you know, they understood an unlimited supply of cash versus a limited supply of cash. And in our case, for instance, like we compete with every one of our competitors are publicly traded. They do really well for themselves. So their marketing budgets are not they're not bootstrapping anything. And so we have to look at it as we thought of this as like, can we get an emotional hook? Can we use can we take chances that they can no longer take or no longer willing to take? And um you know, try and use creative as leverage, right? And like, can we just deliver the message that's a little more interesting, a little funnier, whatever it might be? It's definitely an emotional hook. You know, it's not just your 17th ROI calculator, but then convincing the founding team, convincing oftentimes the investors, it's gotten a little easier that sales, B2B sales is largely an emotional play. Still surprises me when people don't get that. Yeah, I I think- just want all logic all the time. And I'm like, well, logically choosing the smaller of the two options might not logically make any sense. Like you have no risk with the publicly traded company. You have, you know what I mean? So logic is rarely in your favor when you are at a startup or you're competing against pretty large incumbents. 
And that's what, you know, we say all the time on the show, people buy for thousands of reasons, and it's rarely the reason that the salesperson thinks that they're buying for. But yeah, totally. It could be like Lauren Vaccarella tells a story of like one of their vendors used to take, give them like 20 seats at the spa. And so she was like, I could give spa seats to every member of our team, plus people external to the organization at like the spa down the street. She was like, that was just such a nice thing to be able to offer our team. And it was super thoughtful that like, we just always bought from that vendor because <laughs> I was like, I knew I had these 20 spa seats that we could, we could gift, you know, and to your point, Keith, that when you're competing against people who have box seats at Oracle arena, it's like, you know, you have to figure out a way to fight asymmetrically and to give That's them right. something that, well, if they're, if they're going to offer seats to the game, then like we need to offer passes for their kids to learn skiing or whatever it is. Like there's all sorts of stuff that you can be creative. But actually the thing you can offer in that situation that your bigger competitor can offer is you can, you can offer to listen to them and to yep. help Speed. them in ways yep. that, you know, you, you, their right. business is, is important to you and that will be reflected in what they get in return. That's right. Mm -hmm. And we also, I mean, speed is so great in yeah. innovation. It's one of the things you tend to lose the bigger you get. And so just giving someone the ability to say like, oh, that's really interesting. We could actually build that in three weeks. That's something our competitors won't do. Right. Now, the, the engineering team loves it when I say that, <laughs> but it's also true. So speed, yeah, yeah, when you listen and every deal, every dollar counts in a way that it doesn't probably as much when you're $10 billion, right? You, everyone gets a little more of a white club situation. I would say one, you know, simple thing that is more about a strategy that doesn't take a lot of money that is memorable is just a focus on design. Yeah. And we talked about this also before. And I think that, you know, in B2B, it's oof, it can be really tough. You know, we are, we struggle with simple messages. Um, we always feel we got to slam it all in there, you know, and I think that's something all B2B marketers really need to continue to work on is, you know, those simple messages and a focus on design and creativity. And I think we we sometimes forget about that. And that's one of the quickest ways you can dis distinguish yourself is have a focus on design, which is a human, we're trained for that. You know, we know when something is right or not right and visually. And so I do think it's a simple, memorable thing marketers can make sure they're investing in. What are the best gifts? And it doesn't have to be like a monetary gift. It doesn't have to be like a physical piece of swag. But what are the best gifts that you've received from either sales or marketing, or it could be just any type of gift that was someone trying to sell you something? Well, I'll start by saying we can't accept gifts. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and we can't give gifts. There you go. Um, because we work with big governments. And so we have a lot of rules around that, which I'm very respectful of. And I actually think more companies should be doing that in a lot of ways because, um, you know, when you're a company of our size, it's it, it can cause issues. But I would say the one gift that we can give is, for instance, we just hosted an event earlier this year at the Eames Ranch, and which is a unique event here, a unique location in Petaluma, which is the Eames family. And it's a private location. But because IBM partnered with the Eames family Back in the 50s and 60s, they opened it up to us when we hosted a private event there with the family. And it was all about how to bring design thinking into your business. And so we had a lot of CMOs and CIOs coming together. And that was a unique 
experience that only IBM could provide because it's not open to the public. And so, you know, leveraging your uniqueness or, you know, things that are really drive your brand differentiation, I think doesn't always have to be monetary. That's even better because creativity happens better with constraints. Right. So when you can't give and receive gifts, then you have to think even more, you know, outside the box. I actually thought you said give and receive gifts. I thought so as Wait. well. I was like, I have <laughs> some really way, good ones. By the way, it was an <laughs> Let's switch the topic. Let's talk that, about gifts. No, no, no. That was an incredibly <laughs> successful strategy. When I was at Lever, we would we would hit up customers all the time on social with custom made gifts. And they loved it. They reciprocated and you know, it just created a different dialogue with some of our top customers. That's what kind of gifts? Well, just like the team doing goofy things to celebrate their, we we had a, we we turned Valentine's Day into customer love day. It might sound a little cheesy, but people in the organization would dress up to represent the customers. And then we would just like, we would tweet out all these pictures and we'd, we'd tag the customers and they'd tweet back. And some of them even would dress up as lever. I mean, it was just, it was a nice touch. I mean, it, budget zero, but you know, it was a way of expressing this tight relationship that we had. I them. love that. Yeah. That's a gift. That is, that right. is a gift. That is gift. It's a gift, a gift and a gift. Yeah. And even, <laughs> even IBM would be okay with that. Right? Yes. I, I just wanted to say really quick that I can receive gifts <laughs> as well as send gifts. All of, send so say, please send them my way. Say, uh, what is it? Uh, it'll be to Keith, like courtesy of uh, right. Corinne or whatever that's it is. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Send your really nice IBM gifts to me. <laughs> that would be fantastic. But, but let me ask you, though, has, has a gift, in all seriousness, has it ever changed your mind or altered your behavior? Because I've had some wonderful gifts. Thank you, folks. But I don't know that I like I won't necessarily take a meeting with someone because I got a great gift if their solution isn't relevant in some Keith way. Will. Right. <laughs> so, I have very low standards. Different standards <laughs> in the room, folks. So, um, so that's a great point. So the two the gifts that I've ever gotten that I thought were sort of interesting enough, honestly, were gifts for either my kids or my dog. Yeah. So, and they were not expensive things. It was like yeah. a bark box at one point. I was like, yeah, it's like, it's funny you say this because we find this in our own ABM efforts as well. First of all, it depends on the audience too. Like I think CMOs and CROs get spiffed pretty frequently. So you're, you're like, well, that's just not good enough. It's not French laundry. What we find is that in our gift giving is that it's, deals in pipeline it's very it works much better than trying to get new meetings mm-hmm. like it's new yeah. meetings a lot of noise i don't know you thank you for this spatula with my initials on it it's a little weird right now i've gotten the spatula Where's my, my spatula um and so those never really work for me but what we find is even once we've we've established a relationship it could be very early stage um, we did a big ABM event at Lazy Bear probably six weeks ago, and everyone that attended, were, they were somewhere in the pipeline, and they left in a much better place. Like, that was an experience. But, like, getting just people that we were trying, oh, this will be the thing that gets this new person we've been trying to get in touch with forever to come. No, it was almost like zero for 10 in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For all the gifts that are sent with my initials, it never works because Ian Faison is just if. So people just think it's curious. They're like, ah, <laughs> that person is just has some interesting thoughts on the world. It's like a <laughs> Beatles album. Right. Um, but so, you know, it's it's funny that you say that, though, because I think it goes back to being thoughtful. Right. It's like it's not necessarily about the the gift. It's about being thoughtful. 
And I think that that's where, you know, your sales reps specifically are your ears and, you know, things like SurveyMonkey can be, you know, an extension of that. And all the different marketing tactics that we're doing are an extension of that, of how you can listen. But if you're listening well enough, then you can really take some creative insights that people do have. And that's what the best sales reps do is like, you know, you don't send every single person to Patagonia, but it's like, you know, the person who was like, man, San Francisco just moved to San Francisco, didn't realize how chilly it was going to be in the afternoons. And every single person wears Patagonia, like then it's potentially more, more thoughtful. And the final piece on this, Megan Eisenberg, the CMO of Trip Actions, what they do is they give uh, succulents to, I think it's to their customers, but like what a thoughtful thing to put in your office that reminds you of the company, but also mm -hmm. like who doesn't want a little bit of greenery in their life? I think one of the the things that we give customers, which I think is probably one of the most valuable gifts that they say to us is other customers mm -hmm. and connecting, you know, especially in my business, what, what we do working with some of the largest brands in the world is is connecting dots for them and having them realize that the issues in their business that they're dealing with are and cross industry, you know, they're not alone. And bringing customers together in a safe place is probably the best gift that we give. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Okay. So final question on the gift stuff, because I think this is fun. What do you wish that you got more of? And it doesn't have to be like, again, it doesn't have to be a physical thing. I just mean like, what, what do you think people could do to be more creative that you would be like, oh, that's actually really cool. Okay, I'm going to do it because I've just at Can Lions yeah, this week um, or this last week. And I will say unnamed company who we worked with. But, you know, I think when it comes to and I'm not going to say physical things, but, you know, when it comes to whether you're taking, you know, asking my time to, you know, speak at something or whatnot, it's about allowing dialogue to happen. Like even things like this, Ian, like, you know, having podcast of bringing us together or having dialogue. I think a lot of the times when you go to these events or whether it's French laundry or whatnot, you know, I don't want to just be spoken to. I actually want to be in the content. I yep. want to be, you know, I'm there for a reason to build dialogue and have that conversation. And I feel like people forget that it's all about the pitch or getting the sponsor to get their message across. I'm like, Okay, there's another way to do that, right? So just some feedback, I think, you know, more of things like this. Here we are all together. This is valuable for me. Can I say something cool that our team just started doing is that, so we gave spot bonuses to two of our amazing producers. One of them, Ben, who produces Marketing Trends. And uh, the stipulations were they have to spend it on something they've never done before. And then we have to do a podcast episode about it because we're a media company. Cool. So every single thing has to be, you have to figure out some media spin. And I think it's such a great point that like, you know, we do all these events and people ask a lot of our time, but there's not necessarily the values, not necessarily captured and mm -hmm. then, you know, used for other things. And I think that's the thing that's sometimes frustrating when we do this stuff, like, when you go and speak at a conference when it's like not recorded, you're like, give me a break. Like you can't drop a recorder on this. Like put an iPhone recording on the stage to get me the transcript, like stuff like that. Anyway. Yeah. For me, I think, I suppose uh, similar lines maybe is, and I think this is especially true if I'm thinking about tech solutions or looking at taking the organization in a different direction than previously, and we don't have a track record of it. I would love more from vendors on the how so it's one thing to share, okay, you know, company XYZ achieved 
50% uplift based, you know, but but the the how that happened is is all important, right? And that also gives me a true sense of whether or not that is actually something my organization can accomplish. So it's probably something like more time with your existing customers. So I can actually ask them in depth, okay, so, and then what did you do? And then what, you know, what were the blockers? What would you have done differently? Because that's the kind of thing that will get me probably over the, the hump. Yeah, I think you're talking about the, the how, back to why people buy. In my business, in the services business, there is no pure product. You know, the emotion that is the biggest driver in our business is fear. Because what you're talking about is, let's say I buy this product, but can my culture actually use it? Can I bring, drive this into my business? And what you're talking about is a fear of failure, right? That's probably one of the biggest drivers in my business is that if, if they do it wrong, if you're implementing Salesforce or, and SurveyMonkey's in there and it's a new telephony system, is this project going to fail? I'm going to lose my job. That's the emotion that I feed into, right? You're not going to fail. So, yeah. I think, I mean, this all gets to sort of getting people's attentions and executives' attention. And my take, it's really challenging, I think. So everyone in this room, they're now senior enough that they have a big network. So when I when I need something for the business, I usually just ask my friends, like, what do you what do you use? What do you use for ABM? What do you use for this? And that's my first stop. And so it's really hard to like break through that. Yeah. And so what I find is the best thing, like I love getting gifts, but that means I, <laughs> I think you've just, made your point. It's like finding people. Like I want to hear from people like me. So a lot of times, what I see is like, it's like how this manufacturing company did so and so. And I'm like, well, great. Should you know, next time we start producing something, I'll let you know. Like hard goods will be right on it. And so oftentimes, it's like it doesn't look like my network. It's not my network. And it's just, it becomes so much noise. So it's really, really hard. So then the gift just gives me a small amount of guilt. Like, oh, <laughs> like, I don't like, I thank you. I still don't want the meeting. I think <laughs> that's I think, weird. I think you just brought up a really good yeah, point though, which totally. is that, and I think this is a lot of people would say this, that there's a, a network that we all have as CMOs, CIOs, that we, we pass things by. And the truth is, it's about understanding the interconnected network and understanding, again, around, you know, how you're influencing not just that single person, but, you know, more of that connected network. And this is not just a CMO thing. This is this is rampant, right? This is we call this the feedback economy. But uh, from the survey, we know that 82 percent of people trust customer experiences and the voice of another customer over what the company is saying. So it is really hard. You can't really. It's hard to like crack into that in an artificial way because you do, you throw out the question to your network, answers come in and you, you really do trust the trust what's coming in there. We were just talking to the head of the global CMO network in Israel and they have a WhatsApp thread with 70 CMOs that are all Israeli that they share stuff on like every single day. And I was like, man, that's, and they're going to come on the show in the future. But it's like one of those things, like those are the insights where no matter what kind of thing it is, there are those interconnected networks and those nodes that like they're talking about you, whether you like it or not. And if you don't give them something to talk about, then they're, they're not going to, it's just going to be like a eh, pass, no pass sort of a thing. Are there things that in the past year that have been super memorable for you that you took home to whether it's your family or your friends or colleagues, that you were like, I had the best experience, whether it's as a customer or just as a guest of something that you're like, this is exceptional. 
Um, I would, I'll pick a few. Obviously, I, we had an amazing experience that I know SurveyMonkey and a, and a few others. Who, who else sponsored that event? Oh, so this is our customer part alliance. Yeah. So it's SurveyMonkey, Influitive, uh, Sendoso, and Reference Point. All great companies. And we they hosted a, a really incredible experience with other top leaders. And I would say, you know, again, it's about those memorable, unique, not just going to a, a sit down dinner and everybody's there waiting until the dessert come and they're walking out the door. So I do think it's those unique, unique experiences. I would also say, I, again, back to Cannes Lions. I was there in France. This I got back yesterday. And, you know, I do think it's the creative way that you bring some of these experiences to life. It's it's not just, you know, other executives, but bringing creatives, bringing artists, bringing totally non, you would think relevant type of individuals to the table. You know, we were talking about Saturday Night Live and bringing the writing team together. There was an event there that had, you know, some of those elements there, which was really unique experience. It made me think about something different that I hadn't thought about, but it was all related to engagement in our business. So I think it's it's things like that have been, you know, pretty, pretty memorable. Yeah. Were any of you at Serious Decisions last year? I was not. Oh, okay. They had a speaker who's a photographer. Ah, oh, I'm gonna have to look it up. But I my mind was blown. So I think it, I think, Corinne, to your point, it's it's finding how you can add value in just helping people think differently or just get a different form of inspiration or something into their lives that might cause them to to act differently or to just, shift or just, think yeah, different. I mean, yeah. just, just you kind of need that inspiration. So I, I, I know we probably all get invited to a lot of conferences uh, and a lot of the sessions are, you know, sort of ho-hum. But if you can find a truly outstanding speaker that is in an adjacent field or might have nothing to do with the field, but that can bring it back to what matters for marketing or for whatever field you're in, I think that can be really, really valuable. So we're, we're at a stage, we're earlier stage than the other two companies here, but so we do it. We have a good roster of investors and they do pretty good events. Workbench does a really nice job. Injuries and Horowitz does a really nice job. And those are really great because they're sort of vendor agnostic, but vendors get spoken about just so you know. And we it's you know, it's a dinner and it's a dinner without a speaker. It's a like you said, it's a dinner where everyone shows up with five questions ahead of time and then just has dinner and a drink and discusses those five questions, whatever it may be. Those are really useful. And I was, I had a he healthy amount of skepticism going into a couple of those this past year and left really pleasantly surprised. And there's just a really good way to say, how are you thinking about this? What vendors are you using? What do you think about direct mail? Right. Is it successful? And it's just really helpful to get those. And, and I also reached out to a couple of vendors because of that, who weren't sponsoring the event, who weren't anywhere near this event, but just because they had done a really good job arming their customers with both satisfaction, information um, was really great. So, yeah, I mean, I think we all are dealing as in our businesses with very hard and challenging problems that keep us up at night. And it they change year over year, month over month, quarter over quarter. And, you know, I think we need to acknowledge that with our leaders that we we're here. We're here constantly trying to solve problems whether it's talent issues, whether it's metric issues, growth, new markets, and acknowledging that with the type of content and experiences, 
I think is really important because yes, it might be a nice box of jelly beans. You know, I'm trying to grow my business in China or I'm, you know, like I, I almost feel like acknowledging the business issues and, and making sure that it's super relevant around the things that we're all really trying to, to work on in our businesses. And I think that's going to add more value. This is the final question for the group. What are you really excited about going into 2020 for your orgs? Um, I'll go because I'm working on this. I'm very excited to build what I call muscle memory in an organization the size of IBM. And, you know, muscle memory on sales and marketing alignment and emotion. I mean, emotion, a sales motion, that's not the most sexy thing in the world to say, but I think it will, I think for all organizations, having that alignment and driving that is so valuable. So I'm really excited about building that out. I'd say the second thing I am so excited about is I'm working on the new messaging platform, which we've been rolling out. We rolled it out at our conference, Think, which is around what we call the cognitive enterprise. And if we look at some of the exponential technologies that are coming out, which IBM is rolling out, whether it's blockchain, you know, AI with our Watson products, our recent Red Hat acquisition, and the role that humans and experience design plays around this next wave of, of how businesses are going to transform, I'm bringing that to market right now. And I think it's just so amazing to be able to work work on a platform that is going to impact lives in a fundamental way and how we all work. And so to me, that's what's driving me as super exciting, you know, and I'm, I'm so excited to be able to work on that. So for me, I'm excited about the platform and rolling that out into our sales organizations around how we actually make that come to life for our clients. Mine's an unusual answer because I'm usually not that excited about product development. I mean, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's, never as it seems to never be as good as you want it to be but every now and then you have like a window i had this at topsy um back in the day and we we acquired a company called talk iq and so we're able to put ai we call it vi voice intelligence on every call and it's we're in that window where when people see it they sort of gasp and that's a really fun place to be as a marketer it doesn't last forever it usually doesn't even last that long but that moment where you have like a product that feels really unique and then you can do a lot of interesting things, right? You're not playing catch up. You're not playing the commodity game. You can do things that are both product focused. You can do things that are very emotional based on this because it's so unique. And so I'm pretty excited about that. I hope it lasts forever. I'm realistic to know that it won't. But it's a really fun time when you find a little bit of magic in the product and people sort of see it and they just their eyes open and you think, oh, we, we have something here. That's a lot of fun. So I think you asked for just one thing, did you? I I, I yeah. I'll fail miserably at that because there are so it. many things I'm excited Don't about, worry about for my in my second year at uh, SurveyMonkey as CMO. I mean, we like Corinne, We've just uh, the team's been hard at work on a new messaging and positioning uh, platform that we're rolling out across the organization. Really excited to see that as it takes flight. We have had a great year, I think, in terms of starting to get SurveyMonkey on the map as a, a viable enterprise solution. I mean, we really are helping organizations at scale to measure and understand feedback turn that feedback into intelligence that drives growth and innovation. And that just starting to see that story take flight is, is incredibly exciting. Things I'm excited about within marketing. So one is eating in our own restaurant, right? We have this killer set of tools for marketers and the team is now, now starting to build these incredible stories of how we're using our own products to drive 
that growth and innovation. So being able to tell that just super authentically, I think is really powerful for us. But I'll bring it back to where I think where I started the conversation, uh, whenever that was many, many minutes ago, saying the thing I wished I had done differently in my first 90 days was was get to know the team. And I just couldn't because of this IPO pressure. Uh, now that I've been there just over a year, I'm really excited about the, the talent on the marketing team. And, you know, one of the five tenets of this world-class marketing organization that I'm trying to build is that we are aligned and inspired. And the inspired piece to me is really important. We talk about SurveyMonkey as the place where the curious come to grow, right, in line with our mission of powering the curious. And for me and my leaders, it is about creating an environment where they're constantly learning from each other, from outside uh, sources that are doing great things, from different people in the industry. And so, uh, you know, I'm on the hook and I'm excited about building this culture of learning and innovation, which I think I think we all owe to our to our teams. I think that should be a whole other podcast. Yes. Right? Um, we'll bring you team all and inspiring teams because I think that is so there's so much we could unpack with that one. So thanks for sharing that. In closing, I have a game for all of you. Ooh. You're all the players of the game. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say a quote that one of you said, and then you all have to guess who said it. Do you want to play where you can guess your own quote, or do you want to play where you, you don't guess your own quote? <laughs> yes. Yes. Sure. So, whatever you I'll, say, Ian. <laughs> all right. We'll say anyone can ring in with any of the quote. You can ring in by saying ding. Or you can just answer. So you can, if, if you feel like that's you, you can ring in and say, say you. Or you can just say the person's name. Any of those will count. Are you ready? Ish. All right. <clears throat> you said that. <laughs> Did you say it? Okay. Just because you build it doesn't mean they're going to come. Everyone in the room? Ooh. It's one of the three of you. You can call your own. I think that was mine. That's correct. <laughs> ah, sounds like something I would have said. Next up. It's everybody's job to be creative. It's key. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, that's <laughs> we're, me. We're not great at this so far. Yeah. I, I, these are actually, they sell you. The prizes aren't that great. To say <laughs> the gifts aren't that great. No, true no, I'm, say, I'm saying, yo, the guest, the, the host is doing great. Um, or maybe, maybe. What does leadership look like? It's about autonomy, trust, investment, coaching, and accessibility. Ding. Corinne? That is Corinne. <laughs> All right. Well, I didn't one. even know I said that one. That must have been a while ago. <laughs> oh, come on. I was, it was a couple episodes ago. Go straight to the source and ask your customers directly for insights that will significantly imp impact your business trajectory. That sounds like Survey Monkey. That does. That's Layla. It might be me. Yeah, it's you. That should be um, your tagline. I mean, that's I like, know, it's I, like you, that, well done. You just delivered. Yeah. But I live most, and breathe that stuff yes, though. It's so good. Um, that's why you're a good CMO. Oh, Seriously. Thank you. Uh, final one. SEO can be at the expense of conversion. Thank you, Keith. Keith. It is. <laughs> it we really is. Isn't it really awful when you see that and you're just like, it's just clearly that someone wrote a, wrote something for robots Right. Not thinking what would happen when the humans actually, actually showed up. <laughs> right. It's really bad trade. And it's it's 
That still's happening. It still oh, happens. Yeah. I mean, this was like ten years ago. Remember? Right. It still happens. Our market's a very keyword heavy telephony VoIP. I mean, you can yeah, but you can end up with something like the best VoIP for your business, <laughs> which is not a real, you know, real convincing line that you're wanting to read. Well, people and, outsource for like ten dollars an yeah. article, and you're just like, I hate, like hate to be the bearer of bad news, but like that's a little bit of garbage in, garbage out, folks. You can write a $10 article. People are still doing yeah, this? Real. They are. Wow. 100% real. All right. Any final final thoughts from the team? Anything before we, before we get out of here? Thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. This Thanks is great. For, Thanks, for, thanks for, having for having us. It was fun. Yeah. We'll have to come back and do motivating and energizing your team. As, uh, and oof. CMO to CEO. Yeah. I think that's another one we really we should work on. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks Thanks. for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.